every country can benefit by valuing older members of the community, and you shouldn't wait until your country is rich to begin comprehensive social protection. That's according to three experts on aging who met at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's Global Health Lab Symposium, entitled "Is the Welfare State Sustainable in an Aging Society?" Athena Vlachantoni of Southampton University explained how developing countries have the most rapidly aging societies. While Peter Lloyd Sherlock of the University of East Anglia said longevity does not pose a threat, and there are good ways of promoting health in old age, Astrid Walker-Born of Help Age International explained why states need to take their obligations to older people seriously. Her main finding. I think the welfare state is sustainable. That it is basically a function of political will and political demand, and that I believe needs to be based on a kind of societal consensus around、um, governments supporting citizens around the basic. Um, Risks and vulnerabilities across the life course. That sounds a great idea, but in in fact, people could say that some of the older people have had it good in their life. They should have saved. Why should the state have an obligation? Well, I would like to come at it very much from a perspective of developing countries, countries whereby older people will have lived a life in poverty and a lot, you know, basically still poverty rates in, let's take Uganda for example, is about 67 percent across the whole population, amongst many of whom are older. They've been poor all their lives. They've been unable to save for older age, and there is an obligation. And also, to be honest,、um, there is a positive, direct impact. There, where older people do get a pension, it actually benefits the whole household. It actually leads. There is a lot of evidence that where a pension is paid to an older woman or an older man, it leads to improved education, well-being, and health outcomes for younger generations. So, looking after older people can be economically very viable. Is is a point I think you're making there? But Athena, you've got some data about the different countries and the way the rates of aging differ. But in fact,、uh, aging is taking place everywhere, isn't it? Absolutely. Population aging is a fact. It's happening everywhere.、Um, but the the nuanced approach is really to understand that it's happening faster in some parts of the world compared to others.、Um, so there are countries that reached trans- went from the point of being an aging society, which is seven percent of the population aged sixty five and over, to an aged society, which is fourteen percent of the population aged sixty five and over, and they covered that ground in a much shorter space. And these are countries in the developing world. Can you give me the statistic about the number of people who are going to be over a hundred? Over oh, the centenarians. I think、uh, people generally aged eighty and over are the part of the population that is、uh, expected to grow、uh, the, the, the most. But a large number of children born recently will live to be a hundred. That's true.、Uh, the research is by the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and they basically say, using conservative scenarios, that approximately half of the babies born in 2007 in this country will live to age 103. So, Athena, what is your main point about what needs to be done to see whether welfare states can sustain an aging society? My main point is very much along、uh, Astrid's lines. So, it's basically up to society to decide what they want from the welfare state, how they want to design it, which principles will underpin it, and once that has been decided, then it's basically a decision that we have to make as the public. Now, Peter Lloyd Sherlock, you've been talking about pensions. You've been talking about health in old age. Well, what are the sorts of points that you think are most important? 
Well, with high-income countries, I think if we spent less money invading countries and we were better at regulating banks, we'd have a little bit more money to spend on older people. So again, this is about choices. For low- and middle-income countries, the good news is that actually quite a lot of money is already being spent on older people. The bad news is that it's being spent on the wrong older people or in the wrong ways. The vast majority of social spending on older people in developing countries goes to relatively wealthy older people through contributory pension programs, mainly targeting civil servants and formal sector workers. The great majority of health spending goes to high-tech curative hospital services, which only reach a small minority of older people by their nature, and again, they tend to be the most privileged older people. What would you do about this? In the case of low- and middle-income countries, I think uh, my main uh, point would be to extend a package of basic healthcare services which would be available to all, particularly services targeting the prevention of non-communicable diseases in later life, and that would be a public good that would benefit society and economy as a whole and would take us away from these rather zero-sum discussions about generational conflict. If I were advising many government ministers in low- and middle-income countries, I wouldn't say their first choice should necessarily be a social pension, I think a basic healthcare intervention which includes the, improves the health and functional status of older people can actually be a lot cheaper and can increase the capacity of older people to do things for themselves. They're both good things, but I don't think we should see either of them as, as, as a one-size-fits-all policy. I, I agree with that. I think both of them need to go together. The question is, where do you start? But I think you were asking as to what we can do and what we need to be doing. And I think we need to be um, much more savvy at navigating a very complex political economy debate. It is partly about evidence and learning from other countries, like I've indicated before. But it's also about really mobilizing older people themselves to really create demand, to actually have their voices heard, see them as active participants of a political process. And And I think both in the developed world and the developing world, we need to get away from this misnomer and kind of obsession with growth, that we can only afford um, welfare states if there is growth. I think there are some really interesting economic professors coming out with important statements about getting away um, from that idea and that actually... As Peter said, actually, with a very low amount of GDP, both health and cash transfer pension provisions can be made that benefit a whole range of different um, age groups um, as well as economic growth. Now, uh, this all sounds very, very important and idealistic in a way, but could I get all of you to put it into practical terms of uh, how you would make some of these improvements happen, how you'd give better quality of life and more security to older people and how the whole of society would benefit as a result of that. Who's first? Two dollars per person per year. Polypill would control hypertension, diabetes and um, high cholesterol level. Um, it's a very simple pill. It's very easily done. The vast majority of older people on this planet do not receive that treatment. Um, surely that's affordable in any political system and in any welfare system. Well, I think um, in order to do that, all we have to do is wait. We are soon to be uh, a gerontocracy, and uh, very soon the political will that we're looking for will come organically by people voting through the grey vote. 
actually very practical thing that we do in HelpAge is rather than just shouting from the rooftops about increasing inequalities, um, we actually provide technical support to governments. Very often social welfare ministries are under-resourced, um, have no political power. We provide them with some of the support, evidence and, and design options in terms of what they can do in order in their own context with a, amongst their own parliamentary colleagues and um, cabinet to get the political buy-in from the most important Ministry of Finance and Planning to actually make things happen. Now, could I get you all, though, to reflect on the issue with low- and middle-income countries? Because that has been central to some of the discussions here this evening at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, Is it something that only richer countries can afford to, to be fair to older people? Two dollars per person per year sounds affordable, I think, to most countries in the world, even countries that only spend about $20 per person per year on health, which tends to be the case in the world's poorest countries. I think it would be worth investing that two dollars on that kind of intervention that would benefit people. We've done costings in a series called the Pension Watch series, which basically look at affordability of pension in 50 low- and middle-income countries. And let's just remind ourselves that actually when we're talking about universal social pensions provision, we're not talking about $150, $300. We're talking very often very small amounts of money that can make a huge difference. And basically what the costing shows is it is affordable at a range of 1.4 to 3% of GDP. And if you look at the positive benefits that can have on households, absolutely it is affordable I totally agree I second those uh, comments it's a question of uh, political will and choice um, and it's a question of investing in things to do with uh, social growth in the future compared to sort of armed conflict or uh, terms that are, are aimed at limiting society rather than allowing it to empower itself Professor Athena Vlachantoni, and before her, Astrid Walker-Born and Professor Peter Lloyd Sherlock talking with me at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's Global Health Lab Symposium. For Audio News, I'm Peter Goodwin.